You're listening to Real Talk for Real Men, episode number 14. Welcome to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast. Lifestyle advice for men so powerful, you'll want to run your life on it. And now your hosts, Guy Mullen and Chris Field. Okay, well, hello again, everybody. This is Guy Mullen, and welcome back to Real Talk for Real Men. We are in the car once again. You might remember that on a previous episode, Chris and I were driving, and we're on the, in the vehicle again. This time, we have we have Vangis Glenn Weeks in the car with us, who we've just picked up from the airport. So, we welcome you, Glenn, onto the show. Well, thank you very much. Good to be with you. So, Glenn, you've had a pretty interesting life. Uh, you're now an evangelist, and we'll get to that in a little while. But um, perhaps if we could go back and uh, you can tell us where it all began. Well, I suppose in order for everybody to relate to a preacher, you got to have some background. So I was raised in a Christian home in upstate New York. I uh, had a fairly regular kind of upbringing. Uh, I actually was working on farms and dairy farms and had a good friend uh, that I worked with. And uh, came time to go off to university, and I uh, wanted to get away from uh, the rigors of a Christian home where I was told what I could do, what I couldn't do, and I wanted to just go out on my own. So at 17, I went down to the State University of New York in Long Island, and um, I was a sports nut, so I was playing soccer and basketball and like most young men very aware of the opposite sex and um, so I didn't pay much attention to my uh, studies to say the least after a semester down there the um, dean of the university came and said it's time for me to leave and I went back home I thank God that my parents uh, did not um, say no. They said, as long as you leave your sin outside the door, don't bring it in for your younger sister and younger brother to see. Uh, You're welcome to stay here until you get sorted. I went to work uh, on a night shift for General Electric uh, in the factory, and I worked days on the farm, uh, just trying to get myself sorted um, as to what my future might be. And so I... uh, realized my draft status had changed and I was now number one on the list to be drafted into the U.S. Army in 1966 with uh, obvious implications of Vietnam, etc. After speaking with my father, um, which I hadn't really done very much of because I was a real rebel at heart, I didn't think my father knew anything when I was 14 to 18. When I turned 25, I found out my father had really gotten a lot better in his knowledge. So Amazing how that happens. You know, it is, it's, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's something that I think every teenager goes through. They, they don't think Dad was ever uh, with it, you know, until they get a little older and find out that he was very with it. Anyway, I... Uh, was there any one thing you think your parents could have done differently? Should have done differently? They... Oh, no, I don't think there was one thing. Uh, They did the best they could. I mean, we're talking the 1950s, hard times, uh, living from paycheck to paycheck, 
my older brother and I working out on farms just to buy our own clothes and things like that. So it was a, it was a rigorous life, and um, and yet we were encouraged to go to church. And uh, mother and dad were believers. I totally understand uh, their frustrations with a black sheep son, which I really was. But anyway, I went off to university, didn't do well, came home. Instead of uh, waiting to get uh, conscripted into the military, I uh, thought I could uh, join and uh, get their good favors to let me go to every school that they had listed on the sheet, including officer candidate school, which I ended up going to down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and I became the youngest uh, officer in the modern army for about three weeks until another fellow came along, took that claim to fame from me. Wow. As a 19-year-old combat-trained soldier. What was your rank? As a second lieutenant. Okay. And then uh, when I shipped to Vietnam in uh, February of 68, uh, there was a Tet Offensive, a uh, lot of uh, bad things happening in Vietnam. Uh, I ended up down in the Mekong Delta uh, with a platoon of uh, infantry, op- or infantry, and I was in the 1st Brigade of the 9th Infantry Division, which was responsible for everything south of Saigon. Uh, we did all kinds of uh, missions from ambushes to search and siege to um, reconnaissance. I was um, wounded, sent uh, out to Japan with uh, wounds and also malaria and uh, hepatitis as a result of all that. And I was in Japan for a couple of months and then sent back to Vietnam. I came down to Australia in the course of all of that in June of 68. And uh, the reception center and the Australian people were unbelievably gracious to our soldiers. Uh, They had lists of people in the USO that you could phone and they would tell you their address and come over for a meal or just come over and get to know them. I mean, it was amazing. I met the lady that would become my wife through that contact. Uh, she and her sister had me in for a meal. It's the first time I'd ever had a roast leg of lamb dinner. <laughs> Been in love with it ever since. And I learned that passion fruit was more than just uh, what a dumb American thought it was. It was really tasty. I didn't know that I needed any more passion at the time, but it was very good. Uh, Went back to Vietnam after six days and six nights here in Sydney. And uh, started formulating plans as to my future. If I survived it, I was going to go back and muster out of the Army. And uh, I had uh, made some contacts over here with... uh, Utah Mining and a few other uh, corporations over here that were looking for supervisory management people and 
they thought that my credentials as a, an officer in the military would help me to, to do things for them. So I had made application and had been uh, encouraged to come back just as soon as I could. Um, problem was, God in his providence and through the prayer life of a mother and father and other people, I'm sure, eternity will reveal, were praying for me because I was a very angry man uh, wanting to make other people suffer for what I thought was a poor attitude that they had about Vietnam and we came back from Vietnam, they called us baby killers, and they were throwing rotten tomatoes at us at Travis Air Force Base. And of course, it was right in the middle of the civil rights era in the United States, and yeah. the students at Kent University had been shot and killed in demonstration against the war, and so there was a huge upheaval in the country. God, in his providence, allowed my appendix to rupture, and I ended up in the hospital for 100 days. With three major surgeries, and it didn't look very good. So my mother came to me, and she said, uh, Glenn, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, yep. You can get a round-trip ticket for that girl in Australia and uh, bring her over here. If I live, I'll show her the Grand Canyon and the Niagara Falls, because that's what she wants to see. I said, if I die, you show it. And I'll feel good about it did something good. Well, my mother just kind of raised her eyebrows and said, that's all? That's what you want? And I said, that's it. And uh, obviously I lived. She brought Jennifer over and uh, two months later we got married. I wouldn't necessarily suggest that to everybody, but because of the constraints of visas and immigration, these things, I said, now let's just flip a coin. We want to do it. Let's go ahead. So we married. Then she started going to the little church where I was raised in the country in upstate New York. While I was preparing for the police career in the academy, I was away six days and six nights a week. And here was a Sydney cider, a city slicker, and I had put her on a little farm miles from almost anywhere, and she was in a little bungalow see me one day a week for six months. I don't know why she stayed, but obviously God had other plans. And uh, I came home one night and uh, she said, I've got to tell you something. She said, I don't want you to get angry. I said, no, I'll, I'll not get angry. I love you. She said, well, I've been reading the Bible and I've been doing some lessons on what Christians are and what they're all about. I said, oh, really? Who'd you get that from? She said, well, the visiting preacher came in, and he had some of these, so I picked them up, and she said, I've been going through them. Well, thankfully, my wife's a very tenacious lady, good Aussie. Stick with it. Don't quit. She got to the point where she realized that she was a sinner and lost, undone, and unholy before a holy God. Slipped down by her bedside a couple of nights before I got home and simply prayed and asked God to forgive her a sinner, let Christ be her Savior, 
she believed Christ died and rose again. And as the Bible says now that I am a Christian myself, the Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So Jennifer got saved, and I said to her that day, I said, that's all well and good, I'm happy for you. But because uh, state police are mean and ornery and cantankerous, I've got an image to uphold, so we're not going to become fanatical about this Christianity stuff. Almost like I wanted to keep it a secret, but uh, God had other plans again. Two years later, after moving being transferred to a very nice area in Saratoga, New York. And we were living on Saratoga Lake with a house and a camp and a boat and all the toys that a man might want, guns. I was a shooter. I liked hunting deer and bear and everything else under the sun. thought that this was going to make me happy, but I was really miserable underneath. And therefore, I didn't treat people very nicely when I was on duty, and uh, God finally put me in a box, and uh, I couldn't find any way out but up, and so one night, after having been to an evangelistic meeting that my wife asked me to go to, where the gospel was presented clearly, plainly, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I went away uh, thinking, well, yeah, I think I've done that before. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, how could anyone really know anyway? And this was really niggling me for the 35 miles I had to drive to pick up my patrol car. And by the time I got to where I picked up my patrol car to go on duty, I was a uh, I was a mess inside. I just uh, totally had a meltdown, really. I mean, I, I wanted to uh, have a good life. I wanted to continue enjoying the plenty that God, that I thought God was blessing me with, and uh, yet I wasn't at peace. And the Bible says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Psalm 119, verse 165. I didn't have any peace inside, so I knew something was terribly wrong. Well, by times I got to pick up my patrol car, I uh, went out and drove very fast up the interstate highway just to distract myself. But there was no distraction. The Word of God, and I know now the Spirit of God, was convicting me of my lost condition and that I was spurning the law of God and the love of God and I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to rather than to surrender it to a God who only wanted the very best for me. At 11.45 I um, pulled out a little New Testament that I had on my person. In the back the Psalms are there. Psalms are very comforting to read and so I started reading came to Psalm 130, and the first verse says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O God. And I knew that I was in contact with God right then. I just knew it. And so I said, Lord, show me what's wrong with me. Kept reading more Psalms, and the one verse that really 
flew off the page into my mind was Psalm 103 in verse 10. And it says there, God hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And it was like the Lord was saying to Glenn Weeks, I haven't done that yet, but I am about to. And you have uh, this opportunity to make up your mind about me and you and sin and salvation. And so I, I just said, okay, Lord, I'll, um, I'll stop fighting this. And I realized that I've been trying to be a Christian, but I failed. So I'm just going to trust you. And uh, there's a big chasm between trying and trust. Big difference. The moment I prayed and asked the Lord to forgive me a sinner and save my soul, and uh, I didn't care what people thought about me or what they thought they knew about me, uh, the burden of sin and guilt was lifted, and it's never been the same since all these years later. Glenn, can I just put in a question here? That sure. You, you talk about how you tried to kind of improve yourself. What was it about yourself that you didn't like? Uh, the fact that I was so mean and ornery and cantankerous uh, and mistreating people out of revenge for the loss of my best friend and things like that. So what happened with your best friend? He was he died in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you were aware of the need to change? You tried to change yourself? Well, I was aware of the fact that uh, from hearing the gospel from the time that I was young in that church where I grew up, I was aware of good and evil and righteousness and wickedness. But uh, I thought that uh, through improvement, self-improvement, that you could please God and God would just kind of wink at your sin and your unbelief. Uh, I thought I could do enough good uh, by being a police officer, but which I never could. I mean, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. He said, I see a law. When I would do good, I do it not. When I would, uh, I see this happening in my life. And uh, so I need God. I don't need good works. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace... Are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. So good works prior to simply surrendering and praying and repenting and asking God to forgive you a sinner. Those are those are lost. There, there's nothing, nothing a man can do to improve himself to be accepted with God for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what was the, the biggest impact that you felt when you really did surrender? Well, the lifting of the burden of sin, which a lot of it is without uh, definition. I mean, you you have to go to the Word of God. See, the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, His Spirit Beareth witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And this is upon conversion. And immediately, when I asked God to forgive me out of sincerity, 
out of genuineness and and just being brought low before a holy God, realizing I couldn't save myself, I couldn't do anything to make myself good enough for acceptance with God. It was then that the Word of God became a reality, and the decision that I was making became a reality, and it literally is a supernatural change. For the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away, behold, all things become new. And immediately upon trusting Christ, I was a, a newborn infant in the family of God. And I had the Spirit of God witnessing to me and the promise of the Word of God that this was the right thing. And I wasn't uh, going to have to try to be a Christian anymore. I was just going to trust, and God uh, would take care of all of that. Now, Glenn, I want to pick up more of your testimony in a minute, but I want to pick this question up. For the sake of those men listening who actually do have ongoing aggression, anger, frustration, issues that they sort of struggle with from time to time, what do you think really helped you just put all that behind you? Well, salvation. Uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I repented of all of that. See, uh, a lot of the frustrations we face as men are self-inflicted wounds. We, uh, you know, the Bible says there's consequence to sin. And we go out and we live in a contrary way to uh, a holy God. And those are self-inflicted wounds which uh, bring about the frustration and the aggression. I'll give you a for instance. Australia's government just did a survey on 14 to 25-year-olds and asked them about pornography. And 80% of young men between the ages of 14 and 25 watch pornography, according to their survey, once a day. Hardcore pornography, including everything from uh, heterosex uh, to homosexuality to bestiality to you name it. And that is killing our young people. And anybody who has been watching that stuff knows exactly what I'm saying because you uh, are dragged down into a gutter of despair and you lose all your integrity and all of your uh, pureness of mind and heart. It takes your innocence totally away. So that's just one illustration of why men oftentimes are very aggressive toward their wives because they've been watching this filth and they think their wife ought to be performing that way. And that's not godly. That's not has nothing to do with marriage. It's just sure, outright lust mm. burning within, and it wrecks them. Uh, there's plenty of other illustrations, but you take somebody who has uh, acceptance issues and uh, lack of uh, understanding about the fact that we're only acceptable and accepted in and to God by Christ Jesus. First Timothy chapter 1 tells us that uh, we are accepted as believers, as children of God, in the Beloved. And if we're accepted of God, our acceptance issues are out the window. And it doesn't matter what people think about you or what people think they know about you. You are now uh, a child of God, a prince 
and a heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So all of that acceptance stuff and all the frustration of that, it goes out the window because you're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So let's go back then. You've, you've just come to this night of your salvation. Yeah. What happens after that? Well, I went home uh, early in the morning. I uh, only had to work a half a shift that night from uh, 11 to 3 o'clock in the morning because uh, President Johnson had died and they were given civil servants uh, uh, four hours of compensatory time in his memory. I didn't even want to take it that night, but I had to. So I was by myself in the car. And again, that's the providence of God working, bringing me to a place where I'd be alone with him under conviction. And when I did finally pray and settle the issue that he's going to save me, I'm not saving myself. Then I went back to the station, dumped my car, got in my car, my private car. And I drove just as fast all the way back to Saratoga, arriving in uh, my dooryard about 4.30 in the morning. And I ran in the house, ran upstairs, and I grabbed my little Aussie wife by the nightshirt, pulled her up out of bed, and I said, sweetheart, I've just been saved. And she said, that's quite an interesting statement. I uh, was wondering what was wrong with you, you know. And I said, well, let's get up and talk about it. I went down and had a cup of coffee and bye. Six o'clock in the morning, I had explained a lot of things to her, which fell, fell into place in the puzzle for her. Because by that time, I was already actively working, try, again, trying to be a Christian. I was actively working in this local church that she was going to. Uh, I mean, doing all kinds of maintenance, doing all kinds of uh, leading, singing in the congregation, singing special items, uh, purporting myself to be a Christian. People looked to me as a state police officer with uh, favor. and uh, But they didn't know the kind of life I was living, nor the sin that was rampant in my life underneath. Anyway, we went. I went over to see the pastor at 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he said, Glenn, if you had told me this a year and a half ago, I'd have no trouble believing what you're just saying to me. But he said, forgive me, you're one of the best members of my church. And I said, but pastor, I'm not saved. I could be the member of every church. And I'm not, I wasn't saved until tonight. I finally have that assurance from the word of God, the spirit of God, and the change that has come over me that I am now a true Christian, a born again Christian. Well, it took about four months of uh, reading and studying with my wife on a daily basis and on a daily basis, personal reading and studying of the Bible to realize that God was going to end my career as a police officer. And I had no real idea of what I was going to do, but I just wanted to follow his lead. And so I resigned from the state police, sold up my house and my cottage and my boat and uh, just said to my eight-month pregnant wife, I said, let's take off and we'll just go tell people about Jesus. When we run out of money, we'll wash dishes. And I said, look, I, and today I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but it's what God had for us. So we would cut some uh, ties and burn some bridges and, and get out there where we just simply had to rest on God to take care of us. 
we ended up down in uh, Florida, 2,000 miles south. And uh, again, going to a church that uh, the pastor uh, consistently and faithfully preached the Word of God. And while I was there, I had uh, made contact with a couple of men that I had uh, heard preach. And both of them said, well, you know, if you're just, if you're loose and don't have any real obligations and you can do it, why don't you go up to uh, Tennessee Temple Bible College and Bible School? So we did. We uh, went up there and got in there in 1973. I did a four-year degree in three years because of a year-round curriculum. Some of the best years of my life, but hard. They were very difficult. I was working a construction job and going to Bible school all day and uh, trying to, you know, study at night, falling asleep. But with uh, with the help of my wife and uh, the prayers of a lot of people, I got through. And while I was there, a man came back from Australia by the name of Dr. Uh, Jennings, Don Jennings. He'd been over here uh, visiting some uh, missionaries. He was the uh, overseer, as it were, for some of the missionaries here in Australia. And he came over and preached around a bit. And he came to Tennessee Temple and preached in chapel. Well, by that time, I was the chaplain of the Singing Men of Temple, a 38-voice man choir. And so my my job as the chaplain was to give a five-minute devotion every day. And uh, I was so flat chat working and trying to raise a little girl and keep my wife going and all kinds of things. I would go down, I'd run down to the front, and I'd say to any chapel speaker, you got five minutes for the singing men? And because the singing men were renowned throughout the South, they'd say, oh, sure. They'd come over and get a chance to speak to us. And maybe sometimes they would say, well, he, he did. He came over. By this time, I had surrendered to the call of God in my life to be an evangelist. A distinct office that the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. Jennings had done some homework I did not realize and he found out that I was married to an Australian girl in 1975. You may remember that Australia had stopped all Christian immigration under the Whitlam government. But I was able to come because I was married to an Australian citizen. And he said he would like me to consider coming and starting an evangelistic ministry here in Australia. So in 1976, after gradu- graduating, leaving Tennessee Temple, uh, we took a few months to raise a, a few hundred dollars a month just to keep the wolf from the door and stepped out by faith. And we arrived here in Australia in December of 76 and uh, started the evangelistic ministry here in Australia. And it's been a privilege for all of these years to now travel back and forth, but also to live here and to uh, serve here um, and up and down all over the place here in Australia. Preached in every uh, state, pretty much, uh, out in the bush, uh, to the city. And um, it's been a great delight for me personally to have this kind of investment of my life here in in Australia. Glenn, thank you for that. That's terrific to get that picture. I want to just uh, hone your attention again to men uh, 
you imagine you've come to some uh, place in America or Australia and you're standing in front of a group of 30, 40, 50 men that you're meant to address. Obviously, they need the gospel. They need faith in Jesus Christ. But they might even say, hey, we've, we've done that already. We've ticked that box. Uh, what's the next area that you'd be really focusing on for men who really want to follow Christ? Well, actually, you know, the emphasis needs to be on uh, consecration of life. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, that ye present your body a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, proving what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. Now, the will of God oftentimes is looked at as a very mysterious thing. I've worn that t-shirt. I know what, the, what, what a man thinks about the will of God. What is the perfect will of God for my life? Does God really have a strategy and a plan for Glenn Weeks? The answer is yes, and for every one of his children, particularly men. The will of God is general in about 90% of all of us. We're to uh, love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. We're to strive for the masteries of the gifts that God has instilled in each one of us. Uh, everyone has at least a primary gift and maybe several secondary gifts. It's up to you and I as an individual believer to get down on our knees before God with the word of God and say, Lord, show me the naked truth about what you have gifted me to do. Am I to be a uh, person of secular work to go out and get into the marketplace and to be rubbing shoulders with uh, the world so that I can be a, an ambassador for Christ because that's part of the will of God. All of us are to be ambassadors of Christ. We're uh, to represent the heavenly city by telling people of our uh, birthright to citizenship in heaven, and they can have it too. Christ died for the sins of the whole world, especially them that believe, and uh, we're, we're to be that. But the will of God specifically is that 10% that a lot of us struggle with. And is it for me to uh, resist it? No, because God has some specifics for us. And uh, we can find them. God doesn't hold them out there like a carrot to get us to follow him. God invests them in us, and he wants to reveal to us how we can best serve him with our, our talents and our, our gifts, uh, and the, the gifts of the Spirit of God. But there are also gifts in ministry. There are some men who are, like in the Old Testament, uh, they gave uh, the material for the building of the temple to men who God had given masterful uh, workmanship and, and uh, art, art, artisans which were going to be able to, to do all of the decorations and the things around the temple. It's the same in the church today. God has gifted some men with a financial mind and, and he's given other men gifts of uh, uh, architectural design or any number of the trades. And so 
you may not be a preacher. You may not be called to be, uh, you know, a missionary as such to go around the world and end up in the jungles of wherever. But God has called each one of us to serve. And in order to serve, you got to know how best to do it by knowing the will of God. So that's uh, a very important issue is the will of God. When I'm standing before men and I ask them, what is the will of God for your life? And they may say, I have no idea. They may say, well, I think. I say, you can know it if you will apply yourself to wisdom. I had a man tell me when I first got saved after a few months, uh, a couple of things. He said, Glenn, read the gospel of 1 John, five chapters. Read it every day for the next 30 days, slowly, carefully, and prayerfully. Find out how many times the word know, K-N-O-W, or knoweth or be known appears there. It's well over 30 times in five chapters. And God wants us to know some things. God wants us to know what his will is for our life. And you begin reading that kind of thing. Then another man came to me and said, look, the book of wisdom is the book of Proverbs. If you want wisdom, the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, he can ask God who abradeth not. God's not going to hold it back. But if you'll ask, as the Bible says, you have not because you ask not, or you ask to consume it upon your own lust. That's why God doesn't give it. But if you ask, believing God to reveal his will to you, etc., then you can uh, find out that specific part of the will of God that you are stumbling over or that you're trying. Now, discovering one's gifts is important. But also, asking God through our reading of the book of Proverbs. Proverb a day pretty much lines up with the calendar. I know the calendar changes, but you can make up for it. But I still do that today. All these years later, 45 years later, I still read a proverb a day, match it up on the calendar, and I've never found the, the, the depth of the well of knowledge there or, uh, or wisdom. You keep getting stuff all the time coming back. So I address men with the idea, it's up to you and I, as Paul told Timothy, to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that's not just for preachers. That's for every child of God who names Christ the Savior to study the word of God and to study out these uh, things that, to get our answers. I could stand up there like so many philosophers do or so many uh, psychobabble people do and say, if you will do this and don't do that. No, I say, go to the word of God you're now a priest of God if you're saved. You have every access to God because uh, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to reveal to me. And here's a proverb. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit thy work unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Supernaturally, wonderfully, God can establish our thinking. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways. Acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. The Bible tells us clearly that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And the only goodness that any one of us has is that which we have by having Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's our goodness. And so as we trust Christ and uh, we... Uh, 
believe the promises of God, God is uh, bound by his word to reveal these things to us. Okay, well, that's a pretty good place to wrap up. We've uh, gone a little bit over time on this one, but I hope, like uh, like Chris and I, you've enjoyed listening to Glenn Weeks uh, sharing his life and his testimony and uh, what God has done in his life. So thank you, Glenn. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure indeed. Thank you for having me. And uh, everybody, thanks for uh, listening. And as always, please come over to the website, www.realman247.org. Uh, leave a comment or do so also on Facebook. Uh, Facebook. Not Facebook, on Facebook. And, uh, and we'll see you next week. So it's goodbye from me. And from me. Uh, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk for Real Men podcast at www.realmen247.org.